God, we thank you so much for this day, uh, for the times that we have to share together, for, for the joy that comes in being called your child. Uh, we thank you for the way that you love and protect and guide us. We thank you for the unity that we have in the blood of Christ and the restoration that comes through your gospel. We thank you that you continue to work on us, that uh, you're, you're never satisfied with where we are, but we are constantly being made more and more and more into your image. We pray for these next moments, Father, as we open up your word, that, that we would be still for a moment, that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be soft, and our spirits would be willing to be transformed by your spirit. And I pray as we leave this place that we will leave with courage, that we will leave with boldness, and that we will leave with a passion to be the people you've called us to be. I pray that as we leave these doors, we don't leave the Spirit resting inside, but we will follow Him into the world around us, that we would be a light in the community, and we would follow where Your Spirit leads each day. So many opportunities we miss because we either don't recognize Your voice or we aren't willing to listen. May we be different. May we be holy. We thank You for Jesus, the bond of unity we have in His blood. It is in His name we ask these things. Amen. masterpiece in progress here um, Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue our study in Ephesians um, and we're going to look at something Paul kind of takes a break if you will during this discourse on unity chapter 2 he talks about unity and chapter 4 he talks about unity and sandwiched in between um, these two talks about unity and, and restoration of the Gentiles bringing them the Gentiles and the Jews together is this section where Paul talks about uh, the wisdom of God. And he paints a picture here that, that we're going to look at. And we remember what, what we are thinking about through this whole series, that we are a masterpiece in progress. Um, God's not done working on you. He's not done working on me. I don't care if you've been a Christian for one day, one decade, or one century. God is not done working on you. Um. It's like that puzzle that seems to have about five or ten pieces missing. Can't figure out how all the pieces fit. You're always going to be working on it. Um, well, all the pieces are here. But as long as we live on this earth, God continues to shape and form spiritually, internally, from the inside out, to be the people that God has called us to be. And that is such, that is such a beautiful thing to remember, Right? Your story's not being, or your story's not finished. Your creation is not complete. That's why when we look and we see here towards the end when Paul talks about his suffering, it's why we can have a different attitude when we fail. We can have a different mindset when we are enduring trials because what we understand is that things may not look great right now, but the good thing is my story's not over. I am not yet a masterpiece. I am a masterpiece in progress because God is continuing to work, to shape, and to form. See, what we see here from the very beginning, Paul introduces this, this section here uh, in the very first verse of chapter 3. For this reason, right, what is the reason? Well, the reason is what he just talked about. 
right? Remember what we talked about last week, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, that in Christ there is nothing that divides us, there is nothing that separates us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ conquers the things that our culture stands between people. That there is no nationality, there is no race, there is no ethnicity, there is no economic status. There is nothing that stands between people who are in Christ. He overcomes those dividing walls. He's speaking here to Jews and Gentiles. So because of the unity that we have in Jesus, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. You see, we are called to proclaim God's glorious riches, no matter what it costs. What has the gospel cost you? As I look around my life, the gospel hasn't cost me a whole lot. Largely, that's because we live in a country that's relatively free. We have a lot of liberty when it comes to our ability to choose. No one comes and, and holds us hostage in order that we you know, have to either choose our freedom or our Christianity. I'm grateful for that. Maybe on some smaller level, the gospel has cost me some income. Maybe some status, uh, at least when I was working in the secular world, because of the things that maybe I wasn't willing to do. But, you know, no one ever came to me and said, you know what, we just don't hire Christians, so you, gotta, you need to be a Christian or you can be rich. Come work for me. Never really had to make that choice. I guess Christianity at times does cost us friendships. For many, even in this country, it costs them family relationships. For some to accept Jesus Christ, it means they are turning their backs, or maybe their family will be turning their backs on them because of that choice. But in many different ways, and in many different shapes, and in many different forms, the gospel costs us something. At its very essence, it costs me myself. Because truly, when Jesus says if you are going to be my child. You're going to have to give up yourself. He told his apostles, if any man would follow after me, he must deny himself daily. Take up his cross and follow me. And, and you, those, those words are chosen, I think, very carefully because it's not just that we deny ourselves once and then we're kind of done with that. That it's like, all right, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm giving my life over to Him. I am baptized and now myself is gone and I'm living for Jesus. No, it's this constant daily struggle because Satan's persistent. He is more persistent than I am many times. And he will continue to bring about that barrage of temptation, of trial to try to convince me that my decision to be Christian was not all it was cracked up to be. But we are called to minister, to proclaim, to make God's glorious riches known. 
even at a great cost. We see here from the very beginning of this, uh, of this section that God reveals the mystery of His grace through the church. I want you to think about that for a moment. How does the world know who God is? How does the world know what the grace of God is? It is revealed through you as His people. It is revealed through us as His body, as the church. Uh, if we read through this, this section here, it picks up in verse 2. We just left off in verse 1. You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that He gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelations I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles. Um, the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. The turning point of history, right? You can look through history and you can see all kinds of turning points for all kinds of, of nations. Uh, for the nation in which we live, 1776, right? We look back there and that was a turning point for this country because we obtained our freedom. You can look through the Dark Ages and the Renaissance. You can look through the Roman Empire. You can look through the Greek Empire. You can look through the Egyptian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Israelite Empire. And you can see that there are moments for Israel. Maybe it was the Red Sea. Maybe it was that first conquest of Jericho. We see these turning points throughout all of these different empires and these different peoples. But the turning point in history is God's plan of redemption made evident by Christ Jesus. And it is no longer the Israelites who are God's people, but through Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel is made known to the whole world. It is made available to everyone, even the Gentiles. And they're not just allowed in as some second-class citizen hoping to someday achieve some form of residency status where they can be kind of free and kind of apart. He says, no. The Gentiles are co-heirs of the kingdom of God with the people of Israel because of Jesus Christ. You were once far away have been brought near because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And for generations and generations and generations, this mystery has been built up. It has been hidden. It has been revealed in small pieces through the law and through the prophets and, and, and through some future hope of restoration. And now the culmination is that God would send His own Son to live and to die and rise again, not just simply to save Israel, but to save all of mankind, past, present, and future. The sins of all of mankind would be paid for by the Son of God. And it has been revealed in this way. He goes on and he says, This grace was given to me 
the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah, the incalculable riches. Right? What does it mean to have incalculable riches? I don't know about you, but my riches are perfectly calculable. I can pull up an app on my phone and very quickly it can tell me how much money I do and do not have. What I can and cannot buy. Even if you factor in all of the things that I own, it is very calculable. I'm not going to be listed on the Forbes list anytime soon. Even the wealthiest people that we know, the wealthiest people in the world, know exactly how much money they have in their bank account. They know exactly how much their house is worth. They know exactly how many cars they have in the garage, how many companies they own. They know their net worth because it continues to be listed because they want to make that list. But even beyond that, he says the, the riches of God cannot be calculated. You have something that is of such great worth that you can't even describe its value. I don't play the lottery. That billboard that says $439 million makes me tempted to play the lottery at times. But then I'm reminded of my odds, and I have better ways of spending even a buck or two or a hundred. Because the odds are so stacked against. And even though I can't even imagine what $400 million looks like, and feels like it doesn't even hold a candle to the riches that we have in God's grace the incalculable riches of God now if somebody out there won that lottery and decided they wanted to gift me a million or two I wouldn't turn it down and I'd be more than happy to share that with people and let people know that I have been blessed and I want to bless other people. Why do we have such a hard time seeing the gospel that we have in such a way? That we have received such a blessing of grace that, that all of the wealth in this world can't even begin to compare with what we have in Christ Jesus. And what we have in, in the riches of this world may buy us nice cars and nice clothes and big homes and all kinds of the things of the comforts of, comforts of this world. The riches we have in Christ, they don't ever fade. They don't ever run out. Because even if, even if you have all of that money in the world, how many lottery winners do you know that are bankrupt? How, how many former NFL players have you seen that are now declaring bankruptcy because what they once had is what seemed to be a bottomless well of cash turns out it's not bottomless and when you grow up the way many of those people grow up in poverty and everybody and their dog comes out with a handout All of that wealth that you came into is all of a sudden vaporized and what once was a person with everything that this world had to offer now has nothing. Because even the greatest wealth of this world will expire eventually. It runs out. It's not infinite. 
but the riches that we have in Christ Jesus are incalculable. The incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. That Paul says, this is my goal. This is my calling. This is who I am is to bring to you Gentiles a mystery. And this is the mystery that you are invited in. And you are welcome in. And not only are you welcome in, but you are now written into the will of God. And, and not like the plan of God, but the actual will of God. You receive an inheritance from God just like the Jewish people had before. And in verse 10, we see this multifaceted wisdom of God. He says this. All of this is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens. And we know this, right? We know God's manifold wisdom. Manifold means multifaceted. It's the same word. And, and, and it's just like a diamond. If you look at a diamond... You know, a diamond begins as this rough stone. It's not pretty, it's not glorious, it's not shiny, it's not sparkly. Um, it kind of looks like a rock crystal. Looks cheap. But as they bring it in and they, they bring those lasers and they begin to cut off faces onto that diamond and it begins to take shape. It begins to sparkle and shine. And all of a sudden what was rough, uncut, untested and of some value becomes something of great value and great splendor and great glory and with every turn and every twist the light catches it in a different way and it sparkles in a little different way and from every angle that you look at it you see one side of that that brings about its glory and its value the, the wisdom of God is the same way that in many different ways and in many different fashions the wisdom of God shines it sparkles and with every face you see a new and unique aspect of the character and the nature of God. Paul describes this and, and, and he brings it even more clearly and says, this is the wisdom of God. And it is delivered for the rulers and the authorities in the spiritual realm. God's intent was to reveal His wisdom through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms that God allows history to unfold in such a way that he tells the angels and all the powers look watch and it's almost like you see the angels peering over the edge of heaven looking down at mankind saying show me he says I want you to look at my people Yes, angels, I want you to look down there at mortal mankind. Yes, you're up here and you exist with me for a long time, but you want to see my wisdom? Look at these people. Satan thinks he can build walls between people, but look at my people. Satan's on the attack. Satan's on the march, but his people continue to stand and fight, and they are united in a way that nobody in the world has ever seen. 
because they are, uni- they are not united by programs, they are not united by causes, they are not united by laws or any kind of thing that man can create. They are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are bound together by the sacrifice of the Son of God that has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. We must not be a people that continues to build what Christ has already conquered. What do the angels see when they see your life? When the angels peer out of heaven and are looking for the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God and they see your life, they see my life, they see the life of this church, do they see the wisdom of God or do they look and go, has it happened yet? Show me. Or do they look and say, that's special those people live differently the church and and you see this is bracketed between these two teachings on unity the church and the way the church is unified is a demonstration of the multifaceted wisdom of God not to the world but to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms That there is, this, there is this great and this grand expectation of God that His people would deliver that message to the rulers. Do they see the wisdom of God in the way that you live, in the way that we live as a church, in the way that we respond, in the way that we march forward? They must see it. They must see it. Because it can be seen in you and you alone. It's where you work. It's where you play. It's where you think. It's where you speak. It is there that the angels and the rulers and the heavenly realms, and by extension the world in which we live, will see the turning point in history. We'll see the story. We'll see the way that those things are playing out. And Paul, Paul finishes this section as he goes straight from there and he begins to talk for a brief moment but, but not insignificant about his suffering. And we go back to the beginning that we are called to bring this message to show his glory and to show his grace even at great personal cost. And Paul begins by saying, I, prisoner for Christ Jesus for your sake. I preach the gospel and it has landed me in prison and you can read through Corinthians and see all of the things that the gospel has cost Paul. Floggings, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks. He is in danger everywhere he goes. But there is glory in suffering. But the glory in suffering doesn't come simply in suffering. It comes when we are fulfilling God's purpose. He says in verse 11, this is according to His eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. In Him we have boldness and confident, in, in Him we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf. My afflictions are your glory. They are stripes 
that Paul bears proudly, not because they are something that he has done, but because in them he shares in the suffering of Christ, that he has given himself over to the cause of the kingdom. He says, you're looking at me, and I'm in prison, and I'm in chains, and I've been flogged, and my, the stripes are evident on my back. The, the whelps are evident on my head from the stonings. I've got this scar from being snake-bitten. You can't imagine the things that I've been through, but don't, don't cry over me. Don't be discouraged over my afflictions, because I bear them for the gospel, and they are your glory. There is glory in suffering when we are fulfilling God's purpose. And we are able to glory in suffering when we are fulfilling God's purpose. That it is through that purpose that we are able to obtain such things. And I want to close this morning with a prayer. And the prayer is that really what the Paul leaves this section with the Ephesian church. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power, in the inner man through His Spirit. And I pray that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, To him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think or imagine. According to the power that is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. To all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. That is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for us. To Him who is able to do so much more than we can think or even imagine. To Him be the glory. To Him be the power. For all generations. And may we be willing to be tools in His hands change the world in which we live. And may the rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly realms look at us and the way that we are united in Christ and say, man, God is so wise.